Hello, brave fundraisers, and welcome to episode 56 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. My name's Rob Woods, and this is a show for anyone who works in fundraising and who wants ideas for how to raise more money, really enjoy their job, and make a bigger difference, especially during the pandemic. And this time, I wanted to do a slightly different show in terms of where the content's coming from. There's no special guest this time, but I'm going to use this time to share some ideas that I've collected over the years and especially over the last 10 months that I think are especially powerful and pertinent right now at this stage in the pandemic. And it's all about the power of making learning a key value of yours personally and making it a key value of whichever team or charity or department you work in. To be honest, this has always been something that I believe has helped you be happier, have less stress, and also indeed to get better results and raise more money. But it's also true that now with so many uh, urgent challenges and um, really difficult problems coming at you to do with the the fundraising you need to do today, you could be forgiven for um, thinking you'll make time for learning later because we haven't got time now because somehow we just need to find to get some cash uh, to make this budget for this quarter or whatever. Uh, I think that uh, urgency that has come in during the pandemic um, could potentially cause some of us to not quite get round to the very healthy habit of uh, making time to prioritise some learning at some point in your week or in your month. The quote that I really like, uh, I think it's sometimes attributed to, to Darwin, but according to what I, I researched, it's actually a, an economist called Leon C. Meginson many years ago, said something along the lines of, it is not the fastest or the strongest of the species that survives. The species that is most likely to survive is the one that is best able to adapt and adjust to the changing environment in which it finds itself. And I think he is paraphrasing from Darwin's Origin of Species there. And um, the reason I'm making this episode right now is because very few people uh, would uh, disagree with the notion that we've had a time of phenomenal change, not only in the last 11 months during the pandemic, but also in the last five years in terms of global politics, local politics, uh, technology, uh, economics, that all these factors seem to be coming at us, speeding up the kind of change in our own lives and therefore in the fundraising environment in which we operate. And certainly uh, the pandemic has sped all that change up. And frankly, the best fundraisers have always managed to make time for learning because change has always been happening. But given that the pace of change has ramped up and it's only going to carry on uh, over the months and years to come, I think now more than ever, unless we decide to make time for learning in the way we live our lives and in the way we do our work, I think it's going to be ever so hard to, to keep up and to con continue to find ways to successfully raise money to help pay for the valuable services and research and education that our organisations provide. Uh, one of the classic examples you may have heard of uh, in terms of an organisation that did not adapt uh, was the example of Kodak, who apparently, I'm told, were a pioneer or the pioneer in the creation of digital photography technology. 
and uh, the R&D department at that organisation were doing great things, but the leaders in that organisation uh, did not choose to adapt their business model or their, their paradigm for what the company was about. Uh, they felt they were a film producing company uh, and this digital was not for them. Um, and uh, you know, his, history has shown that um, the success and power of that company has radically changed and dwindled because of that failure to adapt. Um, another fairly famous example, I don't know if you've heard of this one, but um, I'm currently reading a book, a uh, really interesting book called That Will Never Work by Mark Randolph, who is one of the two founders of Netflix. And one of the interesting anecdotes there is of a stage really early in the history of Netflix when they were as yet a really pretty small company and uh, they had over, they were growing fast and they'd overstretched so they desperately needed cash flow and so they went to their number one competitor the mighty blockbuster which at the time was worth billions of dollars and had thousands of stores and there was netflix as a mail order dvd company going to blockbuster offering them a large share in the value of netflix and uh, apparently Blockbuster, you know, it would have been relatively small change for that huge company to invest in, in have a, a large share in what Netflix were doing. But at that time, they didn't adapt their view of what their business was about and where the future in, in film and entertainment viewing was. Uh, they didn't see it. They didn't adapt. And now, my goodness, where is Blockbuster now and where is Netflix now in terms of uh, success and the value they provide and the value of the company. So said differently, for all of history, companies and all organizations that don't adapt as you know, with, with changing times and changing environments and changing needs of their customers and donors, if they don't adapt, you know, either, either they radically struggle or even they cease to exist. Now more than ever, unless we decide to make learning a key value of our team, of ourselves, of our charity, I think it's going to be ever so hard for us to um, to surf these new waves that are coming at us in terms of how change is happening. Looking at the charity sector more specifically, if you're a, a regular listener to this podcast, you'll know that I've been able to seek out a bunch of smart fundraisers and people who work in charities who've, who've found ways to keep adapting their approach and, and still raise really good levels of fundraising income this year. Uh, so... Uh, this year, I've, I've found examples of people who've managed to keep learning, keep adapting. One of the ones that um, I've most recently talked to is the wonderful Paula Radley, who's head of face-to-face -face supporter recruitment at Greenpeace UK. And in episode 53, I was able to talk to her. And uh, I mean, to cut a long story short, last year, in, in terms of door-to-door -door or face-to-face -face fundraising, most charities in the UK and I think most of the world door-to-door uh, -door, face to face has been phenomenally difficult or non-existent in many places and yet uh, Paula tells the story on that episode of how uh, she her group of fundraisers her senior management team who are very supportive would de determine to keep looking at if there is a way for us to get out back out there and talk to people who care about the environment and care about the work of Greenpeace uh, let's find a way to do it and do it safely um, and, you know, they tried a bunch of things, but one of the things they ended up doing was um, a really successful campaign in which they crucially solved the problem of um, 
concerns on the behalf of the fundraisers and householders as to whether uh, door-to-door conversations would be safe um, after the first or second lockdown. So people were allowed to go out and about, but how could they keep it safe? And um, one of the innovative twists they did was to create a two metre long mat, which they unrolled uh, on the, uh, at the on the doorstep uh, of uh, any household they were going to talk to. And on that uh, mat, there was a lovely emotive picture of an orangutan with its arms open uh, in a, a lush green rainforest so that if they rang the doorbell and a householder wanted to, to, to talk to them, the first thing they would see is the reassuring sight of not only the Greenpeace UK fundraiser stood back at least two metres, but also this um, lovely prop, uh, which was uh, you know, wholly uh, consistent with um, a, a value of caring about the environment and the importance of that. And, and a wonderful icebreaker it was too. And uh, on that episode 53, there's a bunch of other things uh, Paula talks about, including doing a door drop ahead of time to enable people to opt out of uh, having a, such a conversation at all. A ra- range of things, creative things they did. They did uh, have metal hooks to open gates with so that they're, they're not touching things and so on. All kinds of interesting, clever things. The upshot of, of, of doing these innovative approaches meant that they were able to manage uh, potential fears, reassure people, get the fundraisers out the door, have conversations with people who cared about the environment. And the upshot of that was um, an increase, uh, a successful campaign in which they actually, uh, as I understand it, raised 20% more than they had in previous years during a non-COVID campaign. So when you hear a story like that, it's really tempting to get excited by, or I get tempted to get excited by some of the techniques. But um, one of the most telling things is early on in the story, Paula talks about how uh, right, I think it was right from the early in lockdown, they um, initiated a an information sharing group, not only uh, across the UK, but internationally for various charities um, and indeed agencies involved in face-to-face and door-to-door fundraising in which everyone would share ideas, share concerns, share uh, particular strategies so that as a sector as a whole and that segment of fundraising, the fundraising industry, people were try- helping each other come up with ideas to solve these problems. Um, and interestingly, I, th- I think the um, the idea of having a two metre long mat to reassure householders and fundraisers, actually, I think it originated um, on continental Europe. It, I think it might have been the Netherlands because um, the pandemic was developing in that part of the world ahead of, of the UK at that time. So they were um, uh, already having a chance to try some of these ideas out. So if we make time for learning personally and as a value in the culture of our team, I think it helps you to be more likely to adapt to the changing opportunities and challenges that are coming at us. There's several other reasons why being a learner can help you out. One is it uh, makes use of the priming effect. Uh, and I haven't got time to go into depth about the, you know, what psychologists have learned about the priming effect. But at its simplest, uh, something that you're exposed to or that you do early in a day, I have found, 
uh, can have a sizable effect on how you react to subsequent events later in the day. And in my own experience, on a morning in which I've done made time to listen to a podcast or do some reading, do some learning of some kind, especially if it includes examples of people managing to find a way, managing to be resilient, managing to be, managing to be creative, managing to um, overcome the challenges and raise more money or what have you. If I've studied those examples earlier in a day, then later on in a day, if I uh, am faced with some kind of challenge, there's something about my brain is more likely to react to that new challenge more creatively and to persevere for longer with more expectation that there's probably an answer here somewhere than on mornings in which I'm not um, studying something or listening to something that gives me that belief. So uh, learning helps you adapt. Learning uh, achieves this priming effect so, to, so that you react to new challenges differently, more positively. Thirdly, uh, if you are regularly engaging in learning personally or as a team, I think it just, it feels good. Um, Maslow and various other models of the human needs, one of the ideas in those models that I've taken from my psychology research is that we have a need to grow and make progress. And often our unhappiest times in life is when we feel stuck and often when we're making progress in our job, in our relationships, uh, in our studies or whatever, if there's a sense of progress, often that releases endorphins and it, it tends to feel good. Um, you know, you probably know this to be true in your own life. Um, one of the standout examples to me in this last uh, few months was episode 26 of this podcast when I was talking to Stevie Nicholson and she talks about how um, at that stage in the pandemic to, to, to help people keep learning and stay inspired even though they were locked down in their homes she would do regular sessions in which she'd encourage her team to listen to an episode of this podcast and then for the second half hour they would just have a chat over zoom and talk about what they could learn and implement from those things and she on that podcast she episode she does give examples of how it you know solved problems raised more money and so on but the standout thing to me was the energizing effect she reports it had on her team at Diabetes UK where she works because the act of being given hope, optimism, being engaged in the problem solving in a positive way, it does energize us. So that's the third reason I think making time for it, even though we're phenomenally busy, can pay you back. Uh, and maybe the fourth one is that if you're a learner, then I think you're likely to have somewhat of a growth mindset. The more growth mindset you have, the more resilient you're likely to be. Uh, researchers have shown, um, including Professor Angela Duckworth. Again, if you want to unpack that, uh, then in episode six, I talk about various things you can do to help yourself be more resilient, uh, especially during the pandemic. And clearly there are a few things as valuable to us as leaders, as fundraisers, as people who are doing their best for charities. There are a few things as valuable, I think, as resilience right now. And so if you can somehow in your busy week make time for some learning, I think an extra reason to justify that is uh, you know that in some way it's contributing to helping you be a more gritty and resilient person. So there you are. I mean, the truth is uh, now many of us have not more time right now, but less time. Uh, we've got extra responsibilities in terms of um, maybe looking after elderly relatives, 
uh, or homeschooling or looking after, after small children, uh, extra concerns in terms of uh, finance or health or whatever. I know that many of us have more pressure and less time now than we normally would. So I totally get uh, if in the last you know, few months you haven't managed to fit much learning in. I get that. Um, and yet what I found is if somehow busy though you are, you can squeeze something in, even if it's something you're know, listening to a podcast while you're doing something else. I have found it tends to give gifts back to you. And the, the four specific gifts that, that I've summed up in the first half of this episode are it can help you be more likely to adapt to the uh, the changing environment, and the changing challenges and opportunities you've got. Uh, if you've done some learning, it can prime your day or your week to be more likely to solve problems optimistically, uh, especially if in that learning there are examples that show that success is possible. If you're making time for learning, it, I think it strengthens a growth mindset, um, which boosts resilience and also growth and progress in and of themselves can often feel good and release feel good hormones in your system. So what can we do to strengthen the value of learning I've got several ideas to share in this episode. Some of them are things that you can do at an individual level, and some of them are to, to do with helping that be a value in your team and in your culture. The first one is at an individual level, and I've been doing it for several years now. And it's simply every day with a little notebook or a journal, I ask myself, what have I learned recently? Or what have I learned in the last 24 hours? And there's some days when I can't think of anything, but more often than not, the act of asking that question reminds me of a particular mistake I made or new thing I did differently and better the day before. It might be just something really obvious to do with the, the using of, of Zoom or Teams more efficiently. Or sometimes it's um, you know a, a bigger, more strategic discovery I've made or idea I've had. But the act of every day asking myself for what the learnings might be a, it means I capture things that I'd already noticed, but I'm much more likely to really take um, you know, pay, take them into account and potentially do something useful with them next time, not repeat the mistake. Uh, and B, the other thing I've noticed is as I go through my day, because of this habit of looking for, for the learnings when I do this little habit, as I go through my day, I'm more likely to spot the learnings that are happening all the time that otherwise I think in the past I would have just sort of moved on from, especially, for instance, when th something goes wrong. Uh, now I think I'm more likely to see some hidden value, some benefit, even in a mistake I've made, because um, the question in my brain is still live. What could I learn from this situation? So that's the first first habit that I've developed over the last few years that's really paid me back. And one that I think is great about it is that it doesn't take loads of time. You don't have to sit for half an hour and listen to a thing or read a thing or go on a course, just that two or three minutes most days helps me feel that I now value being a learner, looking for the benefit, looking for the learning uh, ongoingly. That is now stronger in me for in return for that two or three minutes that it takes most days. Uh, the second idea to help you make time for or value learning, uh, in part it comes from a podcast episode uh, I listened to fairly recently uh, by Tim Ferriss, in which he's interviewing the actor Hugh Jackman. And uh, Tim asked Hugh for a, a key part of his daily routine that uh, he's found massively helpful over the years. 
And what he talks about is the advice he was given years ago by the actor Patrick Stewart, who said um, that something that really helps him is to make time in the morning for reading something that you want to read or you know you'll really get value from reading. And Patrick's key point was for years and years, he never got round to reading as much as he wanted to because, uh, you know, the, the day would be upon him. He'd, he'd have pressures in the morning. He'd have to go and do rehearsals or auditions or acting or whatever. And he'd, in the afternoon and evening, he never got round to things. Whereas the one time you have most control of, of your day is what time you decide to get up and whether to build in 15, 20, 25 minutes for reading time for your reasons. And initially had, he had to make an adjustment because that affected what time he decided to go to bed and or what time he decided to get up. But since doing it and loving the habit and it paying him back massively, uh, that's something that served him. And he told Hugh Jackman this years ago. And over time, Hugh said this is a key thing that has helped him keep progressing in his career, keep learning, keep um, stress down, uh, keep in, in enjoying developing himself in the ways that he wanted to. And it's consistent with a book that I talk about in my ebook, in my ebook called Power Through the Pandemic, which you can download for free. I'll mention where you can get that uh, in the episode notes of this episode. Um, in that ebook, I talk about a brilliant hard copy book called The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. Uh, and I talk about how various successful fundraising leaders I've been interviewing during the pandemic with so many other challenges coming at them during the pandemic with you know lockdown, homeschooling, pressures of work and so on. A, a key thing they were doing is making time for themselves, something that would be good for themselves, for their spirit, for their um, feeling okay with life. And they were crucially making time for it in the morning because if they didn't do it in the morning, then, you know, at breakfast time or the team sharing challenges, the day would get away from them. Whereas they could control, as they got up, building in either 10 minutes of cycling on a bike or yoga, uh, or, for instance, writing in a journal, as I mentioned for point one, or reading something or learning something that they enjoyed. So that's my second key idea for you uh, personally, making uh, definitely uh, it your habit to, to be a learner in these troubled times we're in. Um, the insight from The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod says, if you've not done it already, just try out for three or four, di four days, um, building in 10 to 15 minutes first thing in the morning and potentially changing the time you get up in order to build that in. Um, try it for three or four days and see if your day goes better as a result. Uh, if it doesn't, then you know, you've done the experiment and then you, you know. But um, if you like it, then I think you'll carry on doing it. If you're interested in researching that, then I really recommend the book called The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. Um, I read it years ago. It inspired me to quite delib deliberately develop a morning routine that sets me up uh, for the rest of the day. And one of the habits that really will pay you back, I suggest, is making time for reading. And then the next idea I've already alluded to because uh, I talked about how helpful it was in Paula's example is to join a group or community, uh, probably it's going to be an online 
group. Uh, in Paula's case, she was uh, instrumental in setting up that organization for face-to-face fundraisers. Clearly, you don't need to be the leader, but uh, you could join some kind of online group depending on your fundraising discipline, be it corporate fundraising or individual giving. And there are many IOF groups, Institute of Fundraising groups, and other ones as, as well. Just recently, I, I did a talk for a Facebook group for corporate fundraisers that was recently set up. Uh, so there are lots of these groups. There are regional groups as well. Just being part of that community, as long as you discover that it's a very positive community rather than one which is more cynical, as long as you're getting a positive vibe from it, I believe that being part of a group like that, A, uh, because you can pose questions and often get really helpful answers, uh, B, because you're just, you, you get a solidarity with being part of a, a like-minded group, and see because many of these groups give you access to various resources, sometimes um, either free talks or very affordable talks. So clearly that is a sensible option. Then my fourth idea is not so much what you do, but how you do it, which I think makes a huge difference. And I noted that uh, when uh, Susie from the Royal Northern College of Music was telling me about the wonderful difference uh, she and her team have made this year, she said uh, partly a thing that helped was listening to this podcast, Fundraising Bright Spots. Um, but what stuck in my mind was just the way she said whenever we were listening, we were looking to find at least one thing from each episode which we could implement. And most times we managed to. Sometimes there were very small things but we managed to find things to actually go away and do. And I'm not suggesting that you're going to find that's true of every uh, episode you listen to, but I would say that there's a mindset there of being proactive in the way you digest information, asking yourself the question, what here could I actually use? What could I go and do differently? Even if it's just one small thing, that's a quite a different um, mindset compared to just uh, sitting back listening to be entertained. Now, uh, a challenge with the podcast medium is often you do uh, listen, and certainly I do, whilst exercising or while doing something else. That's one of the great benefits of this medium. You can do it while you're doing something else. So I would pair uh, this idea with my first idea, which is deciding to make learning one of your values. And if learning is one of your values, and once a day you find three or four minutes to sit down with a journal and ask yourself, what have I learned? That's a time when you could quite deliberately make sure you're potentially answering the question, uh, did I learn anything from any book I've read or any podcast I've listened to in the last 24 hours? And then as I move on down my list, more of the ideas I'm about to share move away from just you taking personal responsibility for making learning a key value and more to how you could influence your team or your department to prioritise learning as something that really matters within your charity. And uh, one of the obvious tactics you can do is to create some kind of learning club or lunch and learn session, albeit at the moment maybe in an online way. And if you listened to episode 26 of this podcast, you would have heard uh, an interview with Stevie Nicholson talking about how she found listening to this particular podcast helpful. So, so what she did was uh, she would schedule an, a, a particular time each week or each fortnight with her colleagues all across the country at Diabetes UK. And it was a learning hour. And the first half hour would be spent to listening to an episode that she felt was uh, pertinent and useful to most of her team. They would listen to that. And then the second half of the session, they would spend online on Zoom discussing ways to implement uh, and, and make use of the ideas that was 
were covered. So again, she's realizing just as in my previous point, it's not just about exposure to, to new content. A part of the learning loop involves reflecting and deciding how could I use this? What could I possibly do? And again, she found not only various ways that turned into new action and then indeed new fundraising results, but also an energizing uh, effect when people were connecting and discussing and trying to uh, seek out ways to create progress out of the content. And various people who attend my breakfast club for fundraising leaders over the last couple of years have told me that they've created a version of this, uh, not least because uh, a while ago I did a uh, a session on this kind of topic and I talked about the wonderful effects achieved at SolarAid in part by a book club that Richard Turner who was then at SolarAid created and it wasn't just for fundraisers it was for anyone in the charity who was interested in once a month meeting and talking about a book uh, that anyone had read that in any way was relevant to their mission and to their, their strategy of especially influence and storytelling uh, in the model, modern world. And Richard shared a, one particular example of how one of their best ever fundraising results was created because a non-fundraising colleague had spotted an opportunity that Richard and his immediate team had not. And uh, Richard really felt that that colleague was interested and noticed the opportunity because of his involvement in the book club. And like I say, various charities that come along to my breakfast club have told me they've they found this uh, works really well. And the key thing I've discovered is it doesn't have to be about books. Uh, SolarAid's example was about books. But nowadays, there are wonderful TED Talks, there are wonderful podcasts, there are wonderful online, free online conferences. There are so many places you could get great content. But the key distinction I've noticed when leaders make this work is they do make it a regular event that happens at least once a month. There's a hospice in the Southwest that's been getting wonderful results anyway. And in part, Paul from that charity said to me, part of it is because every single month we make sure we meet uh, online and we do a, a, a learning session inspired by whatever content he or someone else has found. And then the sixth option uh, open to you, and it's maybe the most obvious of all, uh, because traditionally, this is uh, if a charity has any budget at all to spend on development, this is where they tend to spend the money. Uh, it's uh, you could go on a one-day course or a one-day conference. Clearly, there's uh, some benefits to this because you can go deep for six or seven hours, and that can improve your skill level. But I think my main point is, if this is all you do, then uh, really life becomes difficult to continually improve. Um, when I look at successful fundraisers that I've interviewed over the last many, many years, the ones that have, have done consistently well are the ones that are treating fundraising progress and success more of a marathon than a sprint. Uh, said differently, early in my career, I would uh, hear in, you know, it's some kind of conference situation about uh, a big success. And I had the impression that, that that success was achieved by one fabulous meeting or one great pitch or one wonderful piece of uh, good fortune or, or skill on a particular day. What I have since learned from studying lots of people who do really well consistently is that success is not achieved by one or two extraordinary moments. Rather, success is achieved by doing relatively ordinary seeming things consistently well day in, day out. 
it's the building of the habits rather than being really brilliantly creative or hardworking on the on the day of the pitch or the big meeting and if you put that together with how we learn uh, my view is just going on a course or a one-day conference is really unlikely to support you in achieving those kinds of consistent excellent habits so my seventh idea and the thing that's closest to my heart is if you can get yourself somehow access to an ongo ongoing learning environment for Brightspot, you might know we've got the Brightspot Members Club where we've got lots of my best training films uh, and downloads and notes and access to a like-minded community that help each other out. And since the pandemic, every single week we do a one hour live training session or masterclass or problem solving session. So that the whole time as you are ongoingly implementing your fundraising projects, you're being able to learn, solve the problems that are coming up, implement and, and keep learning and keep making progress. And the other thing you, you might know that's most close to my heart is our six month mastery programs. Again, because just one day of great tactics for corporate fundraising aren't gonna cut it, but if we keep sharing those across six months, and keep giving you a chance to try something and then reflect back with me in the group or with your coach through the program or with the community across six months we've found it makes an amazing difference to your ability to feel confident and carry on implementing building momentum and indeed getting results so by all means get in touch with me if you're interested in finding out more either about the bright spot members club uh, or where, where you can literally just try that for one or two months or the Major Gifts Mastery Programme or the Corporate Mastery Programme. And you can find out more about any of those options by going to our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. And then the ninth idea is to spend a minimum of 30 minutes talking to your line reports who you work with in your team every single week. And uh, this comes from Richard Turner in an interview I did with him years ago and I said what are the things that have made the biggest difference to you and your team and and your leadership success do you think and he said well it sounds so obvious and so simple but it's something I wasn't doing and he said uh, because he was so until that point he was so focused on creating a wonderful experience for donors that um, he would often um, not get round to having a regular catch-up with the people in his team and he decided to do an experiment whereby he would literally every single week have 30 minutes with the people in his team. And crucially, uh, he would split it up. So for the first at least 10 minutes, he would listen to whatever the other person wanted to talk about. Usually then uh, for a third of the meeting for 10 minutes, he would be able to talk about something that was a priority that he wanted to share with the other person. But crucially, in every one of these 30 minute meetings, he would on the agenda have 10 minutes in which they could talk, talk about anything to do with development or self-development on the on the part of the person he was managing. And, um, you know, maybe occasionally they didn't manage it. But can you see how rare this actually is in terms of uh, the way our meetings with our, our people in our team usually go? And can you see how if for up to 10 minutes every single week you are giving someone to a, a chance to reflect on what they're learning, what they're currently wanting to learn more about, what they have learned from the last event. If you made time for that 10 minutes every single week, can you see how you truly would then be implementing learning as an important value uh, every in amongst 
the other values to do with uh, results and focus to do with the strategy and everything else. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm just saying if you could A, implement that weekly meeting and B, include some time for looking at learning, um, we have found it makes a huge difference. And uh, I invite you to give it a go and see what happens if you do. So there you go. What I think I did in this episode was to not only share why I think now more than ever, uh, personally and as members of teams and leaders of teams, uh, we need to make time for learning if we're to do our very best for achieving our goals and our mission. And I went on to share eight or nine tactics and distinctions that I've seen other people doing effectively to help live those values. Now, if you found it helpful, you want to check out the episode notes, go to um, the blog and podcast section of my website at brightspotfundraising.co.uk. If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit subscribe so you don't miss out on all the other ones we've got coming up. Of the eight or nine tactics by which people can live this value more deliberately, uh, almost all of them, I hope you could tell, were really a mindset shift and about things you can do without needing any budget. So I hope you you felt that and, and can apply something if you've got no budget whatsoever. If you have some budget and you would like to potentially find out more either about the Bright Spot Members Club or the Corporate Mastery or the Major Gifts Mastery Program, then go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services and then check out whichever of those particular programs or clubs you can find when you scroll down there. If you'd like to get in touch or share this episode, then I'm on LinkedIn and on Twitter. I am at Woods underscore Rob. Thank you so much for listening today. I really hope it was helpful and I look forward to catching up with you very soon when we share some more Bright Spot ideas. Mm-hmm.